Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-455 of the Run Run Live podcast. So we've got a great chat today with Zach. He's a runner from Kentucky, and he's fresh off breaking the record for the strolling gym 40-miler. That record had stood for many, many years, 30 years, I think. So that's a great chat. And then in section one, we'll talk about socks, because for some reason, I just figured I'd talk about socks. And in section two, I'm going to talk you through some tips for presenting on video calls, how to have that executive presence now that we're, what, a year and a half in, in the apocalypse, and we're all using video calls. All in all, a compelling and interesting package for you. And this week... I go back to the knee doctor to have my follow-up appointment for my stress fracture. I'm excited. Now, to be honest, there's still a little bit of pain in this left knee where the stress fracture is when I put weight on it, like going down a hill or certain angles. But I haven't run for a full three months now. Really, I haven't. I mean, I did that one week, but not really. So I've been good. And I've been riding my bike a little bit, but mostly I'm just taking it easy. Well, you know, as easy as I ever take it. And I, you know what? I can really feel it. I feel terrible. I've, I've had to go on a diet because <laughs> I'm putting on weight so fast. And some of my pants just don't fit anymore. It's amazing how fast you get out of shape. I'm a good 15 pounds heavier than I want to be. And, and especially with the, the weather getting hot, it's, it's uncomfortable. I don't like it. <laughs> But I suspect the doctor is going to be overly conservative, like, you know, they always are. He's not going to say, oh, go out and run a 50-miler. He's going to say, well, let's get some more x-rays, whatever, right? And on the other hand, I'm going to be overly aggressive, like I always am, right? I'll go out and try to run a 50-miler. So maybe, you know, maybe we'll be able to meet in the middle as I start spinning up some running, because I sure do miss it. And I heard a great metaphor this week. This is the leaky boat metaphor. And I was talking to someone who was an actual sailor. He had spent a lot of time in the Navy. And he said he had been on two boats. And the first one was an old boat. And on the old boat, they spent all their time fixing holes, painting, scraping, and all these other sorts of maintenance tasks. 
to keep the old boat running. But he had also served on a new boat, brand new boat, and they hadn't needed to do any of that stuff. The boat was new, and it required very little, if any, maintenance at all. So I figure my old body is like the leaky boat, right? If I want to keep it operational, I'm going to have to keep doing constant maintenance. Uh, so what do you think? Is that a good metaphor? I don't know. I liked it. I've managed to sneak in a little bit of yoga, but frankly, my flexibility is crap. <laughs> my core strength is crap. So yeah, I'm in a great spot. Fat, weak, out of shape. Best place to start is at the bottom, right? Right? Yeah. As I start to work some running in, I'm going to have to ease into it, you know, two days a week, something like that, three days a week, and I'll need to balance the running with biking and some strength, some other activities. And I've, you know, thinking back in situations like this in the past, where I've had something in a knee or an ankle or a foot, I've had good luck with the triathlon training type setup, right? Where you do, you know, two, maybe three runs a week, but then you do two, three bikes a week and maybe throw in some swimming or some weightlifting, right? And it's a great training methodology because it gives you fitness. It gives you core strength, but it doesn't give you pounding. It's very well balanced. I'll probably have to join the gym, you know, now that the apocalypse is winding down in my part of the world. You know, I just don't have, I just don't have the setup to do this stuff in my house, really. And plus, I'd probably be able to get some swimming in if I want to work that into my schedule. I'm on the fence about that because for me to get back up to where swimming is not a chore, you know, will take me a couple of months because I haven't done it in so long. Uh, you know, I have to decide if I want to do this myself, you know, draw up a schedule myself or get coaching. You know, we'll see. I'm ready to go. And usually I'm I'm a bad coach for myself. That's one thing I learned is I make a terrible coach for myself. I try to do too much and I get frustrated and, and I just don't, I can't, it's hard for me to hold myself accountable. With an actual coach, I'm held accountable. That's the same reason I do a coach for, for dieting and nutrition as well, um, just to keep me accountable. I know what to do. I just need somebody to, to be watching me while I do it. So with all this time working from home, I did manage to get my garden started, although we haven't had much rain the last couple of weeks, so we're getting a little bit of a drought going on. But there's nothing better than those fresh vegetables right off the vine in the summertime, so hopefully some of that will take root, as they say. And uh, Ollie the, the collie, Ollie the crazy border collie, he's not happy with me. I still manage to get out you know, at least one walk a day with him. And it's usually a mile. So, you know, 25 minutes, 20, 25 minutes we walk. And I have to keep him on the leash because he's, he's nuts. You know, let's face it. He's just a psychopath and he's poorly trained. And I don't want to have an incident. And there's a ton of horses in the woods now, out in my woods. Uh, didn't used to be, but now they're out there all the time. My neighbors have horses now. Ollie, like I said, not very well trained, very unpredictable. Um, but I'm sure he misses running as well. So I got to find a way to, A, uh, get some better training into him and B, uh, get him some more exercise. Plus, it's just me and my wife now, no kids in the house, so it's hard on him. What are all of you youngsters up to? Do you have any plans for the summer? I mean, it's almost Memorial Day here in the in the U.S. You guys going to get back into your racing? 
Huh? Well, it's up to you. It's all on you. You can write your own story. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Socks. Let's talk about socks. I don't think I've ever written about socks. And you know why? Because I have never had a problem with socks. I have the great privilege of being one of those runners for who socks are socks. When I first started running, I ran in regular cotton gym socks for years. I only started wearing running socks because someone gave them to me. But since those early years, I have come to appreciate the value of a good pair of socks. Now, like everything else in our sport, your sock choices and your sock needs are going to be specific to you. Here, I'll go through all the different choices and the whys and wherefores behind them. So first, why are socks important? Why do you care? Nothing says you have to wear socks in the first place. Why are you wearing socks? What is their purpose? Well, I would say the main purpose of wearing socks really is comfort. We all know people who run sockless in their shoes. I choose not to do this because I find it uncomfortable. I find the socks do serve a purpose. They keep the sharp edges of the shoes from rubbing and giving me blisters. They keep the orthotics and inserts from sticking to your feet and moving around. And finally, they keep your sweaty foot from getting all gross and stanky in your shoe and slipping around. Now, you may find that running sockless is comfortable, and that's fine. Go ahead. I don't like it. Now that we have decided we're going to wear socks, what do we want out of our socks? The wrong socks can give you foot problems, especially in the longer races or in challenging weather. The biggest among these problems is blisters. Blisters, or their precursor hot spots, are caused by repeated rubbing. If you have socks that rub or fit poorly, they can cause these blisters. For instance, if the sock is too big or the wrong shape, it'll bunch up in the shoe and that can cause a blister. Blisters from socks are going to be related to the fit and the material and the thickness of that material. If you have issues with blisters... Maybe a different or a new sock can help. A good sock will fit snugly to your foot, to the shape of your foot, and not bunch up and slide around. A good sock will wick moisture away from your foot to keep the foot relatively dry. There are also secondary issues that running socks try to solve. The first is cushioning. Many running socks will have extra or different material on the heel pad, the forefoot pad, or around the toes. And this is an attempt to help protect those areas from impact. If you've got sensitive feet or problems in these areas, you may try these socks with the padding or extra material. The pro is that it could be more comfortable to you and solve some problems. The con is that the extra material can bunch up more and actually create the problems that you're trying to solve. My experience has been that if you have good running form and the right shoes and the right fit, the padding is really unnecessary and causes blisters in longer runs. I do appreciate that a 
thicker piece of material where the toe meets the shoe because my foot shape, I have these toes that stick out, especially the big toe. This is where I tear through a normal sock. So a little extra material there, I don't mind. The second thing that socks will try to do is support. Many of the high-tech running socks have panels sewn into them to support an area of the foot, like the arch. And this is sort of like taping your foot for support. You get that a little bit of support out of the sock. And again, if you have some symptoms that you think this might help with, go ahead, try them out. Some socks will extend all the way up to wrap the calves, and these are more like calf sleeves with footies than socks. Personally, I don't see a need to conflate calf sleeves and socks. I have both. I do like a snug-fitting sock that holds my foot. Uh, the third other third thing that socks try to do here is hygiene. There are modern materials that are engineered with antimicrobial properties. The theory here is that the socks made with this material will keep your foot from getting stinky. I have no opinion on the efficacy of this. I have not experimented with these materials. I have found, like I said, that a good technical sock with a nice snug fit will wick the sweat away from the foot and into the shoe. So it's your shoes that get stanky, not your socks. Uh, a fourth thing is temperature control. There are thicker socks made out of warmer materials for winter running, and there are thinner socks made out of cooling materials for summer running. And you can judge for yourself if you need these. Personally, I have never had the need for special warm socks or special cool socks. If you're running, your body regulates heat pretty well, and my feet typically don't get cold. They get hot sometimes, uh, but you know there's nothing really you can do about that. You can you can decide differently. It's all like I said, very personal. Key thing though is to consider the fit and the size. So socks actually have different lengths, and at the low end are the no-show socks that end right at the edge of your shoe, so they don't show. You don't see them. Uh, the next up is ankle socks that stick up above the shoe by a couple of centimeters. And then there's ankle socks, calf socks, crew socks that progressively move up the calves, right? They get longer and longer. And the reason I mention this is that I have found that some of the no-show socks will actually slide down into my shoes as I'm running. And then I have to stop and like pull them up, which is a pain. What I found to be especially important here is the fit. A snug fit protects the foot, supports the foot, and doesn't creep or slide around. Now, I got a bunch of tech socks from ASICS for the New York City Marathon like five years ago, six years ago, and these were fantastic examples of snug, solid socks, technical socks. These socks, they were thin, they were snug, they were contoured to the foot so they didn't slide around, and they offered great support, great protection. The synthetic material was tough, and it took me three or four years to tear through these socks. On the other hand, I recently bought a pack of cheap athletic socks, a pack from Saucony. It had like six pairs in it. And while they're fine, they slide down into my shoes because the fit is loose and the material is not snug. And I've already torn through a couple of them in three months or less. So they're just, you know, there is a difference in the quality and you get what you pay for. Obviously, it all comes down to how much you want to spend to get what you're looking for. 
You get what you pay for, at least make sure they're technical material. I found socks to be a bit like shoes when it comes to people and their brand loyalty. Once people find a sock they like, they really like, they become rabid fans of those socks and they won't run into anything else and they tell everyone about it. And you probably have some of those socks yourself. And there are other variants on socks, but I'm going to leave it here. So in summary, this is another one of those things like shoes that can become a religious war. So don't get too wrapped up in your in your sock opinions. If you've got issues, try different socks in your training. See if they help. I would start with a good, snug, thin, technical fabric sock designed for running and progress from there. And now for today's featured interview. So, Zach, give us the 200 words on who you are. Introduce yourself. I'm Zach. I live in Lexington, Kentucky. I work at a run specialty running store. I do the buying and race directing for them here. It's called John's Run Walk Shop, and I'm a competitive marathoner slash ultra marathoner, kind of slowly making the transition from marathoning into full-time ultra marathoning. Yeah, that's probably the short of it. I was an engineer yeah. for four days and quit. Yeah, and then, good choice. Yeah, I decided uh, to yeah. roll the that's dice in the, in the run industry, and it's been yeah. fun. So we were introduced by a friend of mine who lives down in Lexington. Lexington's a pretty place, especially this time of year when the grass all greens up. It's, it's really pretty there. But she said, uh, I need to talk to you because you just set the course record at the Strolling Gym 40, right? 40 miler? Yeah, they call it a 40 miler. But it's the, really just like everyone at Laz's race. You get a little yeah, extra. They say it's 41.2. Everyone's GPS reads in some variation of 40 and a half to 41. So definitely over 40, but the exact distance, who really knows? And that's it's, in ten- Tennessee. Yeah, it's a little place called War Trace, Tennessee, middle of nowhere. Um, it seems like it's pretty hilly. Yeah. So it's barely a flat spot on that course. You're either going up or down pretty much the whole time. Um, and Laz, being the evil genius and he, that he is, lays it out in a way that you trash your legs in a very specific way to get to the 30 mile mark, right? When you're really starting to feel it. And then he throws in what's called the, the walls, which is kind of the most infamous section of the course where there's no hills, like a single hill as big as what you've run for the 30 miles up to that point. But it's just like four miles of relentless short climbs and descents. So you're just trashing your quads and then you have to go right back up and you trash your quads. And there's steep downhills to go with those steep uphills. So yeah. Oh yeah. You really don't get a break, right? It's a pretty nefarious course. Yeah. And as Laz, everybody who doesn't know Laz, Laz is the Barkley marathon guy as among other things, right? Sort of this uh, mysterious character, but he's a sort of a runner's runner as a race director, right? That's a typical thing that he would do is design a course to, to backload all the hard bits. Yeah, right? yeah. It's sort yeah. of an evil genius, so. Yeah, which runners hate and love at the same time, right? Yeah, I but, think that's kind of part of the draw is that. Yeah, exactly. And I was, I've always been amazed at that. He's the proof of this, like no other person, is that if you make up some really ridiculous course, people will flock to it, right? Certain type of people will flock to it. Mm-hmm. If you make up something really stupid, Runners will show up. Yeah. And it's also interesting that you can give something arbitrary, a 41.2 mile race, meaning just by doing it the same way for 43 years. Yeah. They have like lists of splits, the top 10 splits at every five mile mark from the past 43 years. There are splits in there that are 30 years old, 40 years old from the various people who came through that same five mile mark that's been painted on the road for over 40 years. Yeah. So a lot of history. 
I don't know what they were using to initially measure those five mile marks, but at least the last 2019 and 2021, when I ran the race, it was not super close to what my watch was saying for those marks, but it doesn't matter. It's you're comparing against. Yeah. History, typically, so. the, typically the road races were measured by car, right? Uh-huh. Or by our bike wheel to be an official RCA race. Get, they come out on a bicycle and they mm-hmm. measure them. So there's a science behind it, but no one less, he probably just sort of, he just sort of estimated, right? Sort of yeah. waved a finger in the air and said, this is five miles. Yeah. But for the trail, for the longer trail races, they never measured those anyhow. They just sort of estimated based on what their experience was, because after a while, you kind of know how far you've gone. So yeah, yeah. there's a lot of this can do me there. So, so you won this. this is what, a couple of weeks ago now? This one, it is Wednesday the 12th when we're recording. It was May 1st, so I guess 11 days, yeah, a week and a half ago. How are you feeling? I feel great now. I'm actually scheduled to run another 50K in about 10 days. So I'm just kind of focused on getting my legs back under me right now. And I, I'm really happy with how the recovery is going. No, I was saying, you doing anything special besides being young? Uh, <laughs> I think just being fit. It's nice, kind of nice that the more prepared you are for a race, it seems the cleaner you come off of it. So I was pretty fit and ready to attack this thing. So came yeah, off. I really clean. liked your race report and I'm amazed that you could write that like the next day after running the race. Yeah. Because... I always try to do that because those experiences just leave you so quickly. Right. Right. And I generally can't move the next day. So <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> just, get some downtime. Yeah, yeah. Pop a beer or two and then <laughs> that's good. You know, that's go good. to town. Yeah, I, I found the same thing, right? Especially the emotions part of it and some of the, the nuances, you lose it really quickly. Yeah. So I, I don't write it right away because I'm not, I don't have enough distance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll take notes right away. I'll write down the bullets of the whole race report and then come back to it in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Give myself some emotional distance. It was a really good race report. There's a lot of lessons in there. And it was interesting to hear your voice sort of learning those lessons and talking about those lessons. And I think the biggest one for you was you would run the course before and sort of crashed late in the race, right? Or sort of yeah. didn't didn't run it right. And I think every marathoner has been there where you get somewhere in the 13, 14 miles and you say, I feel great. I'm going to give it a little gas for a while, right? <laughs> Whereas the correct answer is probably, especially at a course like that where the hard bits are backloaded, the correct answer is no, no, just hold your plan and let the race come to you, right? Yeah, and, and that is and so hard to do. It's so hard to do, especially when you feel great. And this one, and I've been there too, you felt crappy or you felt sort of wooden in your stride, right? When you get that flow, you get that flow that you train for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm stop talking, I'll let you describe it, but you were wooden until the very end, and then you dropped into the flow. Whereas the previous year you'd had the flow early, but then sort of crashed late. Yeah. So in 2019, I think it was like, it was like mile five when I just magic happened versus like, I think it started to rain a little bit and there was a downhill section and then things just started to click. And I just went on like a 20 mile tear from mile five to the marathon, but it ended up that that was too much inappropriately hard because by 50 K I was absolute toast and had 10 miles left to run through some of the hardest running on the whole course. Um, So this time around, I both had a greater appreciation for what I was up against that second half of the course and would like to think I'm a little bit wiser. <laughs> um, and on top of that, just as fate would have it, had didn't really struggle through the first half of the course. But like you said, I couldn't really find that flow that everyone wants to find in a race. So the combination of both being more aware of what I needed to do in terms of pacing and effort through that first half of the course and not having 
a great day from the get-go in terms of fluidity, uh, kind of kept me in check for the first 20 to 25 miles. So then when it did come around and it finally started to kind of eke its way out of my legs and I found that flow around 22, 24 miles, I was in a much better place by the time that 50K, 35-mile mark came around than I was two years ago. Yeah, so. that's always much better place to be in, right? Having that at the end of the race versus yeah. struggling in. Yeah, it was a lovely, it was awesome at 50K. I felt absolutely invincible. But and, then, and, you know. And, but that's where you, that's where you hit the, the quote-unquote wall. Walls, yeah. uh, what he was calling the walls, the little short yeah. hills. Right? Oh, I absolutely destroyed the walls this year. I was like shocked as I was doing it that it was like getting up over the hills and then switching to my descending legs, like no problem. Like like careening down the other side of the hill and then getting right back on my horse to go back up. And I was like, as I was doing it, like watching my pace on my watch, it was, I was like, I cannot believe that I'm doing this and I feel this great. Um, <laughs> and then I hit 50K and was just like cocky as hell. And then by like 32 or 33, I was like, oh my God, I, that's when it started to hit. And I was like, okay, yeah. not invincible. Still have to buckle down this last seven, eight miles to make it home. Yeah, it looked like you were a little fatigued in the last two or three. Your splits slowed down a little bit, but nothing serious. Yeah, and that was more of a mental exercise and keeping myself honest from a mental perspective than it was, I think, a physical. Just I wanted so badly to be done those last 30 minutes. Yeah. That's where the race is made. But it, it was funny to me that, again, everybody's been there where you were early in the race, you didn't have your flow, everything felt a little wooden, and you were like, well, today's not my day, right? And you're behind your splits because you knew what your splits had to be to get, you were trying to break the record. So you're like, ah, today's not my day, right? Mm-hmm. And that just goes to show you that in a long race, you can never count yourself out. Things can turn around. Yeah. And that's part of why I like ultras so much is that you don't know what kind of day you're going to have even halfway through the race. You don't know what day you're going to have. And if you just commit yourself to executing a plan that you've put in place for yourself, if you put yourself in a position to succeed 60, 70% of the way through the race, you might have it, you might not, but you don't know unless you put yourself in that situation. So, yeah. Yeah. And it seemed like you prepared really well for the race. What were your volume like? I mean, you can't just show up and race a 40 miler, especially one with that profile. You have to sort of train fairly specifically for it, don't you? Yeah. And that's what I did not do in 2019. So that's part of the issue that I ran into in 2019 is I could kind of BS my way through a marathon slash 50K of it, but then the real meat and potatoes of the course just gobbled me up. Yeah. Um, So this time around, I trained kind of like a marathon plus. So I'm still kind of a marathoner at heart who's doing the ultra thing. My training looks a lot like a marathoner. So I was in the 90 to 110 range miles a week, um, which is about what I would be for a marathon. I was doing probably the biggest difference between marathon training and what I did this time around was that instead of some faster than marathon pace stuff, I never really did any efforts faster than marathon pace. Just the aerobic stimulus and the mechanical stimulus at marathon pace was about all I needed to run the 540, 545s for that 40 miles. Did you do a lot of the sort of profile training runs where you'd end a long session with a bunch of hills? It was more of a, I would incorporate the hills in the middle. So I would do like two to three long runs a week with a middle section, either like two by four miles or six miles, something like that at marathon pace. Yeah. Um, so it'd be like 515, 520 pace over like really hilly terrain. So what's your marathon pace if you're all out in a marathon? Marathon pace, like 515-ish, 
515-ish. Okay. Yeah, I would like it to be 508-ish. But Yeah, well, so 547 is not an unreasonable ask for a 40-miler for you. That's within your tempo zone. Yeah, it's funny that you can run 30 seconds off your marathon pace and just feel like so easy. And your inclination is to think, I could probably do this forever. But as yeah. I've learned through running, I ran a 50-mile last fall, ran 503, which is just over six-minute pace, like 602, 603. And Academically, that's 45, 50 seconds off a marathon pace. If you just go out and run that, it feels like you can do it forever. But no one tells you that about 35 miles into doing that, that suddenly gets very hard. Right. So, so you have to, have to learn how to uh, spread it out, how to spread out the effort and how to hold back, right? Yeah. So there's a lot, a lot more discipline that goes into it early in the race. And then the racing aspect of it on the back end, I've learned over my past few ultras. It's very different from a marathon. Because you have that last like four miles to 10K feeling that you get in a marathon. You're dealing with that for upwards of two hours. Right. Yeah. There's a lot more suffering involved where at your speed, you could be done in well under three hours in a marathon. So that's before the glycogen catches up with you, before dehydration catches up with you. You know, you're getting in before any of the bad stuff happens. Yeah. <laughs> but you extend that another two, three hours and it's a different story. Yeah. It gets fun. You train yourself as a marathon, you train yourself to be out of gas at 26.2 miles, right? To empty the tank at 26.2 miles. And now you're running a 50 miler and you're only halfway there. <laughs> yeah, the exactly. <laughs> but I don't know. I enjoy it. I'm not really fast enough to be a truly good marathoner, but what I lack in the speed category, I think I more than make up in the strength. And I think I have enough speed to kind of be dangerous at that 50 mile, 100K kind of distance. That's a lot of ultra runners are like that, right? A lot of the top tier ultra runners are like that. They weren't the top guy on the team in college, or they weren't really deep on the marathon qualifier for the Olympics, but you shift them over to a longer distance and they get the, like you said, the strength or, or maybe it's just a mental thing to be able to do really well. Yeah. I still wonder that how much of it, and it's probably a combination to be good at ultras. You have to have the physical component, but you also have have the mental component. You have to want to do it. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there, really good marathoners who could be awesome ultra people who just don't want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, it doesn't matter how physically prepared or able you are. It's not going to happen. So you came in and you uh, broke the existing 40 mile record in this race by over eight minutes. It was a little less than four. Oh, I thought I thought I read eight. Okay. I apologize. Four minutes. I was eight minutes off when I ran in 2019. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, you made up 12 plus minutes yeah. over the year to year. And it mm-hmm. seems like you got really good weather for it, which is always a plus because you get a hot day or you get a the freezing rain wind day that can take four or five minutes off of a race that long. Yeah. I specifically did not look at the forecast because I ran Boston in 2018, that terrible year. Yeah. And I think before, yeah, (laughs) I still have nightmares, Um, (laughs) but I think like I checked like a week out or 10 days out and like the weather was beautiful. And then as it came more into focus, like when it, like it shifted by a day or something and it ended up being just terrible weather. So like a week out from this race, I was just like, I'm not even going to look look at the forecast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't control it. The other thing that you did here after breaking the record, you had the great story about the guy who had the previous record, the guy from Canada, which was from 10 years ago, 11 years ago, a long time ago. 
30. 30 years ago? Yeah, 1991, before I was born. I'm getting all my numbers wrong here. 1991, the previous record, and you broke that. That's pretty cool, huh? You feel pretty good about that, I bet. Yeah, I mean, it had gotten to the point, like in certain ultra circles, people were just like, oh, yep, that one's probably going to stand forever. Because the history of the race, it's super interesting to read back through it. The record was like getting lowered every two or three years in the 80s. And then Andy Jones came out out from Canada. He was like a 216, 217 marathoner. Tons of ultra records um, through the late 80s, early 90s. And went out and like just blasted away the old record by like 12 or 13 minutes and ran under four hours. And everyone just kind of assumed that that would never be broken because after that, I think like a lot of aspects of the sport, it kind of, the competitive side went into hibernation for a while. So no one even came remotely close until like 2015 a guy out of Indiana named Scott Breeden went out and ran like 414, which was the fastest time that had been run like the past 25 or so years. That's kind of what sparked new interest in it. Laz started adding a thousand dollars of prize money every year. And then there you go. That was, yeah. So a thousand, it was, a thousand bucks will get the East African guys to fly in. <laughs> yeah. Get buildings where the first year I went after it, it was a 4,000. Didn't get it or 5,000. I can't remember. It ended up being 6,000 for the, the record this year. Um, but that's great. Yeah. So I also figured that I should probably get after it now before uh, some actually really good runners catch wind of it in, you know, <laughs> two or three years. Um, it's an abusive course, but for the right price. Yeah. <laughs> you're getting paid for your suffering. But no, that was a great story where I can't remember exactly how it went, but you get to the finish line. You're like, yeah, can you give me the guy's? contact information so I can talk to him or about the the record or something. And he's like, he's right here. Yeah. Some guy, like when I finished, like guided me to a chair to sit down and he was just like introduced himself as Andy Jones, which was, we had connected on Facebook a little bit um, ahead of the race and talked a little bit about training and the course and everything. So we had talked a little bit, but I had no idea he was going to be there. It was cool to have him there. Yeah. So that's, that's great. Um, sort of ambassadorship on his part. Right. And I think that talks to the the ultra community and how supportive it is of everybody. I'm, I've always been impressed how friendly an environment it is. Yeah. I mean, the running community world in general is very opening, like open and welcome, but the ultra world takes that to like just the next level. It's if you ever hung out at a trail race, it's just, even if you don't know each other, it's just like a bunch of buddies hanging out in the woods. Yeah. Yep. I totally agree. No matter how fast or slow you are. Yep. Very inclusive. What are your big plans now? What do you do next? Well, the answer I have been giving is JFK and or Chicago Marathon and JFK this fall. But I think I'm kind of shifting my plans to the US 50K Trail Championships in New Hampshire in August. What's the course? It's uh, that's close to where I am. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, it's like two hours north of Boston. Oh, so Um, that's up there. Yeah. But it has like 6,300 feet of gain over oh, 34 sure, miles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it sounds right in my wheelhouse. I it's do. probably in the uh, the ski mountains. Yeah, probably. Because um, I did cause... the um, USATF mountain series, uh, New England mountain series one year, and it was all the ski mountains up there. Okay. Most of so, them. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it sounds right up my alley because I do yeah, all my trail these, training. They have these courses where they shoot you right up the center of the double diamond on a mode path, you know, where you... <laughs> Sort of your chin scraping against the the raspberries. Ugh, yeah, so, that's brutal. <laughs> yeah, you'll love it. <laughs> Sounds like something Laz would do. Yeah, you'll love it. All right. Well, that's awesome. I, I mean, uh, you've got a long road in front of you. You're a pretty young guy, so this is something spectacular to do when you're be able to do this while you're in your prime. Yeah, I'm excited for what's to come. It's also fun that ultras uh, kind of allow you 
a longer window to do what you do. So, yeah. you know, my, my flame out pretty young and it's kind of neat that marathoners can go into their mid thirties. Yeah. They can you know. now didn't used to be right. Yeah. I, I think mean, honestly the shoes are going to elongate a lot of marathon careers. Cause I think it's the shoes and the training too. I mean, everybody yeah. used to train like they were heading for a track meet. It's just a yeah. lot of mm-hmm. interval work. And yeah, just the lack of intensity and then Oh my God, you're so much less beat up after racing a marathon in modern shoes than old timey flats. So, so what's, what's your uh, favorite shoe now? Cause this is the uh, unanswerable question. This is a religious question. People always ask if they know you're a runner, they'll ask you, what's the best shoe for me? Racing shoe, training shoe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It depends. <laughs> it depends. Let me look at your foot. All right. This was cool. Thanks for taking the time out. Like I said, I really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate you having me. Love to meet you sometime, buy your beer at some race somewhere. Yeah, I'm in Boston all the time. So. Are you? What yeah. are you doing in Boston? Uh, my boyfriend lives in Boston. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Whereabouts? Uh, Brighton area. Okay. So. I know where that is. That's near yeah. the uh, New Balance headquarters. Yeah, it's like a quarter mile from there. <laughs> yep, I've been there. Yeah. We were a customer of mine once. Oh, cool. Yeah, you can go up to the factory store up in Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Everything's 40% off for New Balance. Man, yeah, sounds like <laughs> But you're probably sponsored. You probably got a closet full of free shoes. No, not sponsored, but do get anything I want at wholesale just by the nature of my job. So you should join the uh, the Hoka team. Those guys seem to be a good crew. Yeah. No, you know anyone at Hoka? Tell them to reach out. Well, okay. <laughs> you and me both. I could use some free shoes. Yeah. All right. Oh, couldn't we'll we all? Talk, we'll talk to you soon, Zach. Thanks Sounds a lot. Good. Yeah. Thanks, it. Chris. Mm-hmm. You're a good guy. Bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Executive presence on video calls. Now, my friends, this is going to be fun. Today, we're going to talk about how to come across as professional on a video call. Since the apocalypse began last year, most of us were forced to start conducting business over video calls. And this was a new experience for many people. And you could tell people were trying to figure it out. In this post, I'm going to give you some best practices, some tips, some ideas on how to use the medium to your advantage, or at least not have it be a disadvantage. And this is sourced from my own personal experience and a LinkedIn learning course called Executive Presence on Video Calls by media professional Jessica Chen. Links in the notes. I have the advantage of being familiar with conducting business through web meetings. In my roles, I've been doing this video call thing since Skype was invented back in the early 2000s. I've also spent a fair amount of my working life working from remote offices, uh, from home or on the road. And what I have learned is that whether you are at the client, in a company office, or at home, it's still work. It's the same work in a different venue. People have had a hard time with this concept for some reason. They struggle mixing their home routines with their work routines. Habits are important. Physical habits will drive your attitude. So the first thing you need to do is make a habit out of going to work. Get up, have your breakfast, shower, shave, put on your work clothes, at least from the waist up, dress for work. Find a space in your house, even if it is in the basement or a closet that you can cordon off, use that as your workspace. Have a place. 
and this is your new psychological office that you go to work in every day. You're working at the office. I have been blown away by how people, even high-level executives, are showing up like they just crawled out of bed or just came in from weeding the garden into these conference calls, and it, it sends a message. On the other hand, I have had people notice, actually call me out as an example of how to dress for a meeting with a customer. And I'm not doing anything different or special. I'm just getting dressed and going to work. But that psychology is important. That habit is important. So that's your first pro tip there. Get cleaned up. Get up. Get dressed. Go to work. If you have an important call with a client, send a note to your team the day before reminding them to dress appropriately and what their role is going to be in the meeting, right? Don't have people show up unprepared or looking horrible. It sends a message. For your physical setup of your office, I would recommend an adjustable stand-up desk. When I'm running a meeting or I'm presenting in a meeting, it is always easier for me to be standing. It helps with your posture. It's more interesting for the people on the other end to watch. You're still only seeing me from the waist up, but when I'm standing, I'm more kinetic and I project more authority. And plus, it'll save your back and keep you alert. For audio... You don't need to have a professional rig, but you need to be audible for your listeners. You don't want bad audio to distract from your messaging and effectiveness. Most modern computers and laptops have decent audio capabilities, but you can take some basic steps to make it more effective. So you should use some sort of headset. Don't use the default computer microphone array the thing where you talk at your computer, don't don't use that. They're typically terrible quality. Your voice will fade in and out as you turn your head away from the array, and it will pick up a ton of background noise and typing noise. So don't use that microphone array. I see people doing this. It's easy enough to get a headset. You're going to have basically three choices. The first one is the audio jack. That's that little round hole, and you stick the pin in it, You can plug any standard audio headphones from like your phone in there. And this is what I use. I use a set of iPhone wired earbuds and I dedicate that pair to that computer. So they're always in that computer, in the audio jack. And the quality is excellent for both the microphone and the headphones. So it's a win-win. So some computers will have low quality headphone jacks. So that audio jack, that little round hole will be low quality and you'll get static or whining or just bad audio. So if that happens to you and your computer, your second choice is a USB headset. So, you know, like the call center people, you get the headset that plugs into your USB port. And these can give you a slightly higher audio quality. And your third choice is Bluetooth if you're computer is set up to do that. You can use a Bluetooth headset. I don't use these because I find them to be a bit finicky. They decide not to work or they run out of battery just when you need them. So I go with the wired headset. But the point is, don't use the microphone array. It sucks. And test whatever you do use as a headset to make sure the quality for your audience doesn't detract from the interaction. Because a lot of times they won't tell you your audio sucks. So ask people. Now, the apocalypse work-from-home wave forced a lot of people who are not used to being on camera to be on camera. 
And I know a lot of you don't want to be on camera, but you don't have a choice, so you should own it. <laughs> own it! Again, most modern computers have a decent camera. If yours doesn't, you can buy an external USB camera. Either way, you want to set the video so that it is at eye level. The little camera lens should be right at your eye height, looking right at you, which is a lot easier if you use a standing desk, like I mentioned above. Don't position the camera so it's looking up at you. No one wants to be looking up your nose. You can position it slightly to the side, right? That's okay, so that then you can turn to look into the camera when you're addressing people. And I do this. I find it gives me more action or interest. So let me explain how this works. So think of it from your attendee's point of view. In a normal meeting at a conference room, you're not going to be staring everyone in the eyes all the time. You're going to be up at the whiteboard or up at the projector. You're going to be moving around. You're going to be pointing stuff out. That's what I'm simulating here. I have my laptop with the camera eye level on my left, slightly to my left, maybe, you know, five degrees off center, and my big monitor at eye level in front of me, or maybe one to two degrees right. And this way I can move between the two, but more importantly, I can turn to the camera and look them in the eye when I need to connect, either listening or presenting, just like you would in real life in a conference room. Uh, let's talk a little bit about lighting. Lighting is important. I've seen some horrible lighting in my video conferencing. You want to position your desk if you can so that you are facing a window and natural light is shining on you and filling the room. That's the best. That's the A number one. You can get the same effect with a light positioned in front of you, but it's tricky. The light has to be the right color. It has to be a soft white light and it has to be in front of you and it has to be you, it just has to be right. It's very hard to do. If the light is above you, it gives you that weird shiny head, right? If it's behind you, it gives you that weird silhouette look. If it's beamed right at you, it makes you look shiny and greasy. Natural light is the best. Otherwise, you're going to need to play with the light sources and the positioning to get something that works. And you might say at this point, Chris, I'm not a camera person. And I would respond, A, get over yourself. B, use it to your advantage. You see, you can be that person, that person on the call who turns on their camera first. That gives you power, authority, and believe it or not, empathy. You're giving your viewers that gift of your video. It's very empathic. You're giving them something inherently human. Celebrate that. If they don't want to turn their camera on, fine. But give that gift without that expectation. It helps them connect. Be that person. Show how confident and excited you are about this meeting by showing up and turning, on that, turning that video on. All right, so now that I have you on camera, let's talk about body language. Body language and facial expressions really matter in a video call. You might think they don't matter because you're not physically present, but actually the video call emphasizes and amplifies your body language and your facial expressions because you are framed right in front of your audience. You're right there. You're on TV right in front of them. This is not as hard as you think. You can see your own video in these meetings, right? You can put your picture of yourself right there on the screen. 
And you can watch yourself and practice your body language. Watch the effect that your facial expressions have on the audience. You'll be amazed. So basic good body language, it means good posture, right? You're standing up straight, shoulders back, leaning into the camera slightly, and smile. Look at the camera right into that little lens when you address someone. Be relaxed, be loose, but not sloppy, like you're ready for anything, you're confident, you're ready to go. And use use that facial expression, because like I said, they're amplified because you're in this little frame. Use smiles, frowns, looks of concerns. Use your hands. Your hands are going to be in the frame too. You can be thoughtful or expressive. It's all amplified on camera. Use it to your advantage to color your narrative. So I have an experiment for you to try, and you'll see what I mean. Next time you're on a video call, make uh, some sort of casual observation about the weather or, you know, my dog has been barking all day today, and then smile into the camera. Smile into the camera and watch what happens. Everyone else will smile in response. You have triggered them. Your body language and facial expressions, for good or for bad, control the audience. So <laughs> it's, it's very powerful. As far as backgrounds go, thank Zeus for virtual backgrounds. The bedroom I have co-opted for my office is a wreck. If I had to put it on camera, I'd be fired. I use either a generic company background or I use an outdoor nature photo from one of my walks. So don't use anything too busy or distracting or, God forbid, political or anything like that. Landscapes, office scenes, they're great. When I use a photo from one of my walks in the woods, you know, it becomes a prop for small talk and ice breaking. Again, use it to your advantage to set the tone. People will ask you, what is that? Are you in the ferns? Are you in the woods? And you can have a conversation about it. It allows you to grow closer to people. Empathy. Okay, one last video tip is what to wear. Again, you want to dress professionally, but you want to wear solid, quote-unquote, gem colors. And this means reds, blues, sapphires, those sort of colors. Checked patterns, striped patterns tend not to do well on video. They're too busy. And it really depends on your camera and your lighting. So test it out and see what looks good and what doesn't. In summary, don't be afraid to use video calls. Use them to your advantage. Become a student of what works and what doesn't. Set up your technology so that ads, not detracts from your message, and use the nuances of the medium to augment your narrative. And practice, practice, practice. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have run more than 40 miles, like 42 miles through the rolling hills of Tennessee to a record finish. At the end of episode 4-455 of the Run, Run, Live podcast. That was fun. So I'm speaking of running. I guess not running, but Runaways. I watched the movie Runaways on Netflix this week. And I've been, I've been waiting for it to come on to Netflix because I, I wanted to see it after I read uh, Sherry Curry's novel, Neon Angel. And I'm sure I wrote a post on that somewhere in the last five years. It was a pretty... Pretty interesting book because I lived during this this time. So, the Runaways were an all girl rock band in the seventies that had a number of hits. Uh, the big one was Cherry Bomb, right? Cha 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 Cherry Bomb. Now they had some 
pretty big name actors in here. Kristen Stewart, she does a great job playing Joan Jett. And Dakota Fanning is Cherry Curry. Uh, They don't have much of Lita Ford in the movie. So they had some famous musicians here in this group. I had been, like I said, waiting for this to become available. It had not been for a while, but now it is on Netflix. And I won't spoil it for you, but it was all the gross, sweaty, druggy stuff of the 1970s. Wrapped up in that Los Angeles rock and roll thing. Worth a watch, I guess. If you, you know, if you think about the fact that these were 15-year-old girls in this time period, it's a bit surreal. You know, like I said, I was alive back then, and it was sweaty, druggy, and gross. Apologies for not having any exciting stories to tell you this week. It's hard, right, when you're stuck in the house all day. Every day, stuck in the house. I'm still bashing my way through the first season of my Serial Apocalypse podcast, After the Apocalypse. That project, we're in, uh, we just booked episode 16 last week, and I think I'm going to end season one at 20 episodes and then take those 20 episodes and package them into a audiobook and a book, uh, ebook or whatever, you know, whatever that package is. So I've got about 8,000 downloads now. It's slowly growing. But the thing about these types of properties is that they are evergreen. They last forever, slowly but surely, building up that audience. And my <laughs> sort of my secret that I'm not telling everybody is that, uh, you know, as I'm moving towards retirement over the next couple of years, writing would be a great hobby as long as I'm not funding it, right? Uh, I don't need any more expenses. This week's show has been brought to you by three long-time members, and as I move you towards the exit, let me tell you a little bit about them. So first we have Craig. Craig recently went on an adventure involving trolls and unicorns in the fairy land of Ungbuttalup. There, he interacted with an evil snow queen and saved a princess. Well, actually, that's not allowed anymore. He helped a princess save herself, and they lived happily ever after. And there was something about candy canes in there, too. I don't remember. Next up is Lewis, who's a mechanic for a professional race car team. He spends his days splattered in motor oils and nursing bloody knuckles from having rapidly fixed a head gasket in the pit with a torque wrench in the Daytona 500. And finally, we have Cliff. Cliff He runs a tiki bar on a tropical island in the South Pacific called the Bally High, where he dishes out sweet drinks with little umbrellas in coconut shells to tourists while secretly gathering information for M5. Run, run, live members lead interesting lives. You should try it. And I will see you out there. And then he thought... That he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry